This is Cambridge Judge Business School's online knowledge centre with expert commentary, analysis and insights into the issues of the day. The question, Islamic finance, is it here to stay, was posed and discussed in the first Islamic finance forum to be held at Cambridge Judge Business School. Students, alumni, academic staff and industry professionals were given an insight into the fast-growing world by leading players in the field. Among them, Baljeet Kaur, who heads the Global Economic and Investment Research and Advisory Teams at KHF Research Limited. Farmida B., senior partner in the globally acclaimed Islamic finance group with the London law firm Norton Rose. Richard Thomas, CEO of Gatehouse Bank, who's 30 years' experience of the Islamic sector. Contemporary questions were raised by the audience and answered during the forum, which it's hoped paves the way in the school's aim to establish a more structured research establishment in Islamic finance. The first speaker was Baljeet Kaur, who offered an overview of an industry with a growth rate running at 15% per annum over the last four years. Afterwards, she sketched in greater detail. We're looking at uh, an industry that uh, has seen a growth of assets of about a trillion dollars. Our conservative estimate is for the industry to grow to $1.6 trillion by 2020. So really the impetus for growth is coming from um, vast uh, developments in emerging markets, a huge demand for Islamic um, instruments. Um, the vast liquidity that is very still available in emerging markets, uh, predominantly in the Middle East uh, and in emerging Asia, uh, and also uh, a move uh, towards ethical financing post-crisis, where we've seen a lot of demand uh, for Islamic instruments. Um, and so we're seeing an industry that is uh, fairly robust um, in its uh, growth trajectory, and it's something we're very positive about. You talked about an industry that's growing at, at the rate of 15% per annum? That's right. Yes. It's an amazing figure. It is, yes, absolutely. Especially since it's starting from a very low base, and really the industry has only been fundamentally around the last decade or so. And also the last decade has been fueled by economic prosperity, uh, fundamentally in emerging markets. So this growth rate is a very conservative growth rate. Um, we anticipate that once the global economy is normalized, that growth could actually perpetuate to about 20 to 21 and that is on the back um, of a very resilient capital market, the growth of uh, the Sukuk market, which is uh, uh, similar to Islamic bonds, the growth of high net worth individuals uh, demanding more and more Islamic assets, as well as the growth of uh, a broader retail Islamic market, which will also include uh, takaful uh, or Islamic insurance. Um, so these various factors put together shows very encouraging growth, a very encouraging growth profile uh, within Islamic finance. One of the questions during the course of the discussion was about the, the, the pre- and post-financial uh, crisis, and it was suggested that some economists are saying that actually uh, more attention should be paid to the Islamic system, the is Islamic banking, because Islamic banking had fewer problems and, and the crisis might not have occurred. That's right, absolutely. In fact, it's a very, very interesting thesis. Um, just going back, uh, looking at how Islamic institutions evolved, uh, at the onset of the crisis, Islamic institutions were very much insulated um, from, from the first, uh, first fall-on effects of the crisis, fundamentally because Sharia uh, financing disallows investments uh, into debt that 
trades on debt. Uh, and so collateralized debt obligations, collateralized loan obligations, a lot of derivatives are basically not permitted within the Sharia context. And so within that framework, Islamic institutions were fairly insulated from the onset of the crisis. Nevertheless, Islamic finance does not exist in a vacuum. It exists within the broader global financial architecture, and that includes the conventional f- uh, framework. And so when global economies uh, felt the real crunch from the crisis, and the real economy started to get impacted, um, valuations of assets uh, took a drastic uh, dip. Um, we saw the crisis taking a more sinister uh, uh, outlook um, when investments, consumptions and so on failed. Uh, so by virtue of that uh, Islamic assets were also impacted. Nevertheless, an interesting point to note here uh, is that if you look at Sharia financing uh, in its purest form, in its most fundamental form, which disallows investments into highly speculative investments and assets, this really is a very interesting financial mechanism that takes on a, a very ethical twist uh, but at the same time provides stable long-term partnership type of returns. Um, so it's an industry that's, that's growing, uh, that's gaining a lot of momentum, uh, especially in emerging markets where infrastructure financing, for instance, is taking a very Islamic-led uh, approach. Uh, and so the outlook really for Islamic finance is, is very bright. Where does Islamic finance or Islamic banking, because there was a discussion about that too, but where does Islamic banking sit today, post-crisis or emerging from that crisis? Well, I think there were some very interesting lessons that Islamic institutions took away from the crisis. The first uh, is on risk management. Really, the Islamic industry has only been around for for a decade or so in in, in key markets. And so the industry has not really been tested um, by sort of a huge crisis. And so this really was the first... Uh, sort of litmus, uh, litmus test. And so the key takeaways from that were the building of a much uh, robust, stronger risk management framework, the role of the regulator uh, in providing uh, assurances in a time of crisis, uh, the role of the management in providing corporate transparency and in ensuring uh, that the Islamic institution uh, complies uh, within the framework of its Sharia confines, and also in investing in, in, in a sort of partnership-led approach uh, so I think post-crisis, the key takeaways for Islamic institutions will only see these institutions grow far stronger, far better, uh, and, and in much more positive light. It didn't stop the question, though, did it, about the, the whole concept of Islamic banking. Is there such a thing? Well, if you look at Islamic banking uh, as being a form of partnership, then yes, there is a, a strong argument uh, that, that builds a case for Islamic uh, finance, that builds a case for a more ethical way of investments, that provides a sort of stable long-term returns uh, to both the investor um, and, 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 and the investee. And so, yes, there is a very strong case for Islamic finance, especially as global markets evolve um, post-crisis. That was Baljeet Kaur of KHF Research Limited. You're listening to the latest programme created for the Cambridge Judge Business School's online broadcast centre. Farmida B is a lawyer and senior partner with the international securities group Norton Rose, and according to the Sunday Times, among the 13 most powerful Muslim women in Britain today. Islamic finance, she told the audience, can mean different things to different people. Later, she explained what she meant. Islam, as it's practiced by many of the Muslims in the world, is is Sunni Islam, where there isn't a clear hierarchy in the way that perhaps there is for Shia Islam. 
there you have certain sources you have the quran the hadith which is the example of the prophet and you have centuries of jurisprudence to rely on but there isn't anyone who can definitively tell you what the answer is to any particular question now there are a large number of scholars who devoted their lives to studying um islam and there's a very good chance that they have a deeper knowledge of any question that we're dealing with and that's why people like me go to the scholars when we're structuring a transaction to get their opinion which is called a fatwa but one scholar can give an opinion that another scholar can properly disagree with and so what you need to do is to first of all get an opinion from a scholar which is acceptable to the group of investors that you're targeting but then it's perfectly possible for a different entity uh to approach a different scholar and come up with an alternative and there isn't anyone who can finally say that one product is correct or properly sharia compliant and another one isn't and that's why i think the courts in the uk or in england and wales decided that they weren't going to uh opine on what was sharia compliant and what wasn't they decided that there was no single system of law which set out what was sharia compliant and therefore that was something for the parties to decide themselves and the courts would look at a contract purely under english law you've raised one of the most interesting points and that is the 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 rule of the scholars because as you say you can get different opinions and different bits of advice the the leading scholars the sorts of people that we work with um tend to have not just um sharia knowledge and experience and degrees from the leading institutions but they also tend to be very experienced in conventional finance they tend to have been to the the leading western universities and they are very rare beings because they have both knowledge of the conventional uh, markets and uh, legal and business systems as well as the sharia Uh, legal and business systems and it's because they're able to bring the two together and come up with solutions which are compliant with the sharia but also allow people like us to put transactions together that are appealing to investors in the 21st century uh, that they are considered so special and there are so few of them once you involve the scholars there this this extends this prolongs the conversation doesn't it and this is one of the criticisms of of islamic finance it takes too long to organize well generally speaking you don't wait until the end of the process to involve the scholars you begin you involve them at the beginning so as you're putting a, a transaction together a structure really at the term sheet stage you need to be talking to the scholars and to get a preliminary approval on the structure that you're going to use so you can get a, a preliminary or initial fatwa the scholars will then remain involved as the the transaction is documented and they will look at the final documents and then issue a final fatwa on the structure which should replicate what was set out in the initial fatwa subject to any changes the scholars have agreed along the way so it shouldn't add to the timetable but it is an additional step that needs to be taken You referred several times to the the amount of interest in global interest there is in in involvement in Islamic finance Islamic banking including somewhere like Russia for instance where mm-hmm. there's, there's a, a great deal of interest uh, because of its trading relationships with that different parts of the world including Turkey. Yes. Are you saying that within that somewhere that Islamic finance is more accessible than conventional finance? No, it's an alternative. Um for a country like Russia or Germany or even the UK Islamic finance offers an addition to the conventional markets it offers an additional source of liquidity and it therefore makes sense for 
institutions um, in countries like Russia or the UK or or wherever else we're, we're considering to be able to tap both the Islamic market and the conventional market because it it offers them a broader range of investors and combined would either allow them to raise more funding or offer them better terms. That was Farmida B of Norton Rose. Richard Thomas, chief executive of Gatehouse Bank, has over 30 years' experience in the Islamic finance and banking sector. He spoke of the UK's commitment, the trans-European picture, and said that the last couple of years has seen a rediscovery of the fundamentals of Islamic finance. One of his key messages was the importance of a level playing field, and he spelt out why. Two aspects, really. One is that for the wholly Islamic banking organisation, its main competition these days is the Windows Islamic institutions, the, the conventional institutions who have a separate window. And so it's very important that the, that competitive environment is based on, on a fair playing field so that the Islamic bank has the same um, constraints and same uh, uh, costs and uh, regulatory environment that their competition does, and sometimes that's not always the case. The other context really is uh, in a much wider aspect of uh, a level playing field for the whole of Islamic banking compared to the conventional system rather than individual banks. And the conventional system rewards debt and penalises equity through the mechanism of tax or accounting or regulatory uh, capital. And the Islamic banks need to have... They either need to to pay more tax on on some of their products or they need to carry more capital than than the conventional banks. So they don't have a level playing field. The uh, levelling of that environment is important and sub- below that, on a marginally less important level, is the, the, the basic regulations of things like deposited, uh, depositor insurance and, uh, and other matters where Islamic banks can't quite see the world in exactly the same way that the conventional banks can. You've been involved in, in Islamic banking, Islamic finance, for over 30 years. Did you ever imagine at the outset that it would develop in quite the way that it has done? And, and, and the rate at which it's growing at the moment at 15%? growth rate per annum? To be honest, not at all. Uh, I was convinced by the model very early on uh, that had the benefit of, of seeing the, the merchant banking model operate pre-Big Bang and to know what a different, you know, what, what a non-global, what a non-universal banking model looks like. And so I was very much attracted to the Islamic model. I could see its veracity, but felt that it was always very likely to be a, um, a niche operation. And seeing it flourish in Malaysia and Southeast Asia with government support, seeing it flourish um, not just across the Middle East but down in Africa and across Eastern Europe and the Stans, um, through Europe with the attention that the various European governments, UK predominantly, but, but French, Italian, German governments, Swedish governments have paid to it, and then across into America where there's, where there's a surprisingly vibrant Islamic economic model being developed there as well, in, in particularly in home finance and products. I had no idea that it would globalise. And the growth rate is probably much higher than it appears in the, in, the, in, in the official figures. They talk about the amount of money in bank accounts, the amount of money in banks. And it doesn't really talk about 
the amount of private capital and private wealth and private equity which is being done outside of the banking system. So uh, uh, where you would have less of a measure would be, say, a, a family business which had made the decision to move from a conventional to an Islamic model. You might see them move money from... You might see them move their current account from one uh, account to an Islamic bank. But what you wouldn't see was the rest of the... Um, the business economics changing, which they might do in a non-banking environment. So I suspect that actually the, the true growth of the Islamic economic model and Islamic finance is much larger than this 15%. That's really just the, um, the simple-to-count simple money in the bank. You talk about the interest and, and that expansion, but London has been a centre for Islamic banking for many, many years, probably the, one of the largest in the world. Why do we not see high street branches of Islamic banks? Or are they there but concealed by another name? London emerged as a centre for Islamic finance in the 70s as a centre of liquidity management, and it remains a key part of what London is about, is providing solutions for liquidity management. The Islamic banks were very successful, Dubai Islamic Bank, Qatar Islamic Bank, Islamic Development Bank, very successful in their national environments in raising deposits. But in those days, the economies were much smaller economies than they are today. They found it quite difficult to mobilise that liquidity in their domestic economy. It was creating an inflationary environment. It was difficult for the Islamic banks to deploy that money with... Uh, um, uh, on, a, uh, on a profitable basis. So they looked for people to help them, and the only people they could think of that might be able to help them were their traditional um, correspondent banking relationships, and those traditional relationships were uh, with the British banks. So that's how we started to develop that model. But the, the domestic engagement with high street banking and business for British Muslims is really probably only 15 years old. It probably took quite a lot longer for that model. It's, it tripped up over BCCI, where a lot of fraud was involved, and that caused trouble with um, spreading the model. There were some other um, problems which led to suspicion. But now, the, um, with the Islamic Bank of Britain opening up, there are high street branches, but high street branches are very, very expensive. And if you're not already established with a network of high street branches, then it's very difficult for anybody, conventional or Islamic, to start again. We see Virgin Money and others looking for um, how they can build that model. Well, the Islamic banks have a real problem in, in acquiring that, you know, building that capacity. But they are there. Islamic Bank of Britain is on the high street. Thank you, Richard Thomas of Gatehouse Bank, Farmida B and Baljeet Kaur for your contributions to this programme. Islamic finance, is it here to stay? This programme was produced by the Cambridge Judge Business School as part of its online broadcast series.